Welcome to DesignCast. Jason Reagan will guide you through the MYP design course like a pro. Stay tuned. Hey guys, welcome back. And on this episode of DesignCast, I chat with my longtime colleague and friend, David Ardley. Dave and I met in the summer of 2006 when he was the workshop leader on a DP design tech course that I was participating in. The training was absolutely amazing and we have kept in touch since then and collaborated on multiple projects. Our friendship is another reason why being in this global field of design educators is such an awesome opportunity. So I would encourage you to reach out to those people that you consider your mentors and friends and contemporaries uh, in the design field. In this chat, Dave and I discuss a whole range of topics, but as the discussion moves on, we found that there's a theme that began to emerge and that was value-added education. And this is a very valuable concept for schools to consider and to begin wrestling with as short and long-term goals are being formed. We would love to hear from you on the topic, so please reach out in either the comment section of Anchor, where you're listening to this podcast, or through my website, which is www.jasonreagan.ga. Dave shared a lot of books during that time, and those will be in the show notes, and so I really am looking forward to hearing from you about what your thoughts are on that. I also want to share with you all an exciting resource that my friend Evo Hanan has been working on and developing for probably the last six, seven, eight, nine months. Evo hosts a fortnightly live stream on YouTube, and it's called Ed Talks Live. Now, Ed Talks Live is a live talk show format uh, show for teachers and parents to bring insights, thoughts, and ideas from a local and global perspective to help with remote learning and homeschooling needs, which is needed now more than ever. So the next live show is actually going to be on September 6th, and that's at 7 p.m. Gulf Standard Time, as he's based in Dubai. If you have time, please check it out. It's a lot of fun. You can head over to his website, which is evohanan.com, E-V-O-H-A-N-N-A-N.com. Also, if you listened in episode two of this podcast, when I spoke to you, not episode, season, (laughs) if you listened to his episode in season two, when I spoke to Evo, you'll remember that we were working on a sort of global design alliance. And so we have actually met since that episode, and we'll be sending out some forms in the very, very near future, probably in the coming week or two. So please keep your eye out on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and so on, wherever you follow uh, the two of us. And uh, hopefully you can take part in that and be one of our first adopters of this new alliance. And so without further ado, here is my chat that I had with my good friend, David Ardley. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining me again for an awesome interview that I have here with a longtime friend and colleague, Dave Ardley. I cannot do him justice introducing him, so I'm going to let him introduce himself. So Dave, thanks for being here and tell us a little bit about yourself. My pleasure, Jason. It's really good to catch up and see you again, my friend. I met Jason back in 2005 on a diploma workshop that I I was doing, and we've been in touch ever since in the design education. We both live and breathe it, so that's where we met. I started my education for design in the UK. I did a four-year B.Ed. design and technology 
psychology degree for secondary education. I was educated in Hong Kong. We lived overseas most of our early lives. I went through secondary school there and that kindled my interest in not just design, but teaching. I, I, I really enjoyed it as a, on the student side. So that's what started that. I went into teaching. I started in a, an independent school called a private school down in the West Country in the United Kingdom, teaching design and technology, coaching a bit of rugby things. And then you, once you're in the system, you start to move around. And so uh, I went through being a, a head of department, a housemaster, doing a number of things in the UK. Got my first international taste down in France in 1999, which was the world's, uh, the first all laptop school in the Northern Hemisphere. So every kid from four to 18 had a laptop. We can talk about that later. And it was a really interesting time. Then uh, back to England for my eldest daughter's education. She wanted A-levels. We made the decision, went back. And then we came to Switzerland about six, seven years ago. Again, teaching design technology. I was involved in marketing and missions, enterprise, that type of thing. Moved a little bit. And now I'm here near Samaritz as an assistant head in the international section of uh, boarding internationals. And that's been over, what, 34 years. So that's that's about it in a nutshell, buddy. Wow. Yeah, as you said, we met back in the early 2000s, mid-2000s. That was a, a clandestine group of people. We all kind of kept deep. in touch. It was very, very good. We orange. had a great time. That's right. And what I remember orange. of it, it was awesome. <laughs> so yeah, we had, it was. <laughs> we had a great Where was time. It? it was Athens, wasn't it? Was it Athens? It was, it was Athens. in Athens, Greece. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it was fantastic. It was we had such a great couple of days together and several evenings together as well as a group, yeah. which was fantastic. And we had a great time. And so, yeah, we've kept in touch since then. And I know that your design is in your blood. You're a pure design teacher like me, but now you're actually kind of in a new role. Can you tell us a little bit about what your new role is all about? Yeah, certainly. It's my relationship with the school started through design. I came and helped set up design and technology for the diploma for them. And then they invited me back very kindly to be involved in the in the bigger picture of school development. And the school is going through change in a very positive way. We've got new developments facilities-wise and building-wise. And also, you know, we're quite a small school. We're only about 300 students, Jason. Most of those, over two-thirds of boarding. A lot of international students. And as I said earlier on our pre-chat, we, we run the Swiss Mature Tools too. So we have 120 local students from the Valley and from the area who come in uh, every day to study with us too. So it's a really nice cultural mix. And for me, there are two main roles for me is to support the, the head of the international department in, in what she wants in her vision. And she's new as well. She's new last year. So we get on very well. And that's part of the kinship here because it doesn't matter how good you are at your job or what you are like as a person, that human connection is important. And I, I struck an accord in, 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 with, with her and likewise. And we had the same philosophy. So that's what drew me here. I'm overseeing things such as the introduction of IGCSE for next year, staff development, appraisal, just weaving the fabric actually because the school is, we're a beautiful school in a beautiful place, but we're a little bit isolated. Where I was before down near the lake in Geneva, I think there are 25, 27 schools around the lake. So you've got a hub of like-minded establishments working together just you know to do the same thing. Here, we've got a few schools, but they're two, 300 kilometers away. So it's you're slightly more on a limb. You're relying on this uh, use of technology to help support what you do. But anyway, my, so my role here, yeah, it's 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 to support the international section and see it through development. As I said, we're, we're taught later, we've introduced a CP program, IGCC we're looking at, the nature of what this curriculum is and what we do and, and how we do it, the nature of the timetable. So all that really, Jace. That sounds really fun. Sounds challenging, you know, at, yeah. as you've had a long career as a design and technology guy to have something kind of challenging now is really fun at this point in your life, it, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, I should, I'm also involved in the boarding side as well. So I actually do some boarding uh, work with the students and, and that side of things. But the interesting thing for me on this, Jason, is that coming into the job in design and technology, you're quite used to managing a lot of things. So you, you manage budgets, you manage people, you manage strategy and development plans. I think arguably more so than many other subject areas who just rely on the school to tell them this is what you've got and then you go. I don't want to be uh, dismissive of, of a lot of schools that do integrate everyone. But in design, you have a lot more autonomy, I think, to, you know, equipment, health and safety. 
safety, footprint, design of buildings, human resource appointments. It's a slightly different beast. There's that experience bringing it in to this role has been really exciting. And I, yeah, I'm enjoying the ride so far. You're absolutely right. I think that design teachers especially are uniquely prepared to do a lot of different jobs. Not only that, but I think especially that kind of thing where there's a lot of moving parts and pieces because that's the nature of the job, you know, is you're having to put all those things together. And so tell me a little bit, are, are they building a design program? Have they had a design program? Are they enhancing it? What's the sort of situation? The school had a new development quite recently, which had visual arts and performing arts included, but bizarrely didn't have dedicated design and technology, but it had the space to do it. Yeah, I know. And that's where I've came in. So we, we took over uh, one of the very large visual arts studios, basically, and not at a detriment to visual arts, but they got a lot of space, but we've integrated basically a product design philosophy in there. So we've got, we've just had a complete fit out now with, I suppose you and I would understand as you've got a bit of systems in control, we've got a bit of manufacturing areas, you've got your 3D printers and your lasers and that type of thing, but it's, it's basically to support the diploma curriculum. So we're going to start with the diploma and then we're going to reverse engineer it back down to the younger kids, the younger students. We've got a, we've appointed last year a very capable, lovely uh, young lady, Anya, Anya Kelleher, who's our uh, lead on design and technology. She's really in the loop. She's, the kids love what she does. And so we've got the philosophy and the, you know, the buzz is there and we're moving it forward. The problem we'll have is twofold. The expansion, we've got 17 currently in our IB one year. We only had two students two years ago academically. So that's really great. But the hit on the other um, group four sciences has been interesting because you know, I suddenly say, well, where are my you know, kids for physics or chemistry? Well, you know, not my problem. I mean, it is, of course, we'll work together. But I think one of the interesting things for me, Jason, and you'll get this, is that the, whereas design teachers have always been quite good at marketing and, and putting it out there with you know, displays, talks, social media, I think some of the more traditional subjects have just relied on heritage that kids will come through and will do what we're going to do anyway. And suddenly, especially, not just because of COVID, but the past three, five years, there's been a change. Kids are voting with their feet. They want to do design and technology, or they want to do visual arts, or they want to do more business and kind of work-related stuff. You've got to manage that expectation from parents who said, I want my child to be able to use a computer. Well, actually, they're always on their mobile phones, everything anyway. We don't really have to give two years to that, or we can certainly support their use of it. And all this type of thing. But design has been quite easy because it's it's about anthropology. It's about human needs. So there's a there's an easy drive to get that. But to tell a little, a younger student that, chemistry or physics is the thing not just because you want to get to university but the value in it is because that's a slightly different different hustle and I think teachers in those areas are suddenly realizing well we do have to market and then we get told off because we're marketing too well in design and I you know, again I say well it's not my problem that's I'm telling you, we're speaking the same language because I, 10% of my job is education and the and 90% of it is marketing and systems and those kind and organizations, right? And, and how yeah. that works. And so I completely agree with you. I know exactly what you mean. And that whole group four discussion is definitely a, uh, a touchy one in a lot of places, you know, and do you then make a shift and make it a hit on somebody who's in the group six setup either, you know, so that's the other trade-off there. So I think as you're saying, you know, uh, we have the CP as well. And it's a really good option for those students. And it's a lot more flexibility. And I think there's a lot more that can be done there. So that's awesome that you guys are doing that too. So is the CP part of this design technology suite that you're talking about? Coming on to the CP program, we introduced it last year. So our first student has gone through this year. But yeah, design and technology is one of the subjects in, in the hub that they can do. And we made that decision because a lot of the syllabus work that's within a design and technology syllabus naturally goes hand in hand with the CP ideal and philosophy. And so it was a neat, that's an easy one for 
us to put in there would be a dumb thing not to do. Business as opposed to economics, and that's an, again an interesting one, but the business acumen side is very important. And thereafter we give choice, be it a language or be it, you know, we, we've got some students, I think, I've got to be careful here, in this current cohort who are doing some visual arts as well it, within the diploma as part of the BTEC. So we've got a bit of flexibility, but again, small small school, we've got to be careful how we apply staff because it's, you know, obviously it's costly if you've only got two or three students wanting to do the CP within and how do we timetable that. But yeah, design fits in really well. And the other point, just on that, Jason, we were saying earlier, I see a lot of people talking about this on schools, on forums, sorry, and things. The kids are not the difficult sell. The kids snap it up and go for it. The ones we've got to educate are actually our, our colleagues and kind of team members in management, governors, and parents, because they're the ones that, that still hark back to an era. And I'm only talking for some of them, it's only 10, 15 years possibly, but they're harking back to an era where at school they saw design technology as a bit of woodwork, or they saw business as, uh, I don't know, selling soft drinks at break time to make some money for a charity or what have you. So the whole mindset there, the kids get it. Kids aren't the issue. It's the adults, actually, that you've got to educate. And it's like using technologies. It's it's educating the adults to, to help us. But that's another, we'll get onto that later, I'm sure. I completely agree with you. I mean, it is, it's all about marketing and all about getting these uh, these other adults, like you said, who, you know, everyone's an expert on education because they all went to school, right? <laughs> so they, everyone knows, right? And so I will say that the parents that our current CP cohort, the parents are really, really happy they made that decision, that they supported their child in making that decision. And so I think you're right. I mean, I think that it's definitely something, there's a lot of flexibility and a lot of our students, their DP subjects that they're choosing are portfolio subjects. So therefore, they're not even having to take exams in that sense. And so there's a little bit of a, you know, some some maneuvering you can do there. Yeah, there is. And the point about the IAs, Jason, is a very good one. It's the, I think I had a chat with, you probably saw Carl Malsom on uh, on one of these. We're talking about reverse engineering, what we need. And I think this, again, it's not because of COVID. I think it was in the ether, but now we've been forced. What do universities want and what a world of work want from our students? And actually, as much as this is good, and saying, oh, you've got, you know, three A's and two B's and this and that, aren't you great? Sitting down with a portfolio saying, this is my ideation, this is my ideas, this is the line of how I got from there to there, that's the problem I hit, that's how I evaluate it. The normal stuff, in the, that is something I think now that people are realizing is, is actually quite important and it's the application of your maths and your language. It's not just the, you know, the knowledge. You know, and I always think that you know, a little knowledge applied well is much better than having someone who can name you all the capitals of Western Europe and do nothing else. And somewhere in between is a, is a good land, a good place. I think design is the good place. I think that's where it radiates all this stuff. And I think we can spearhead curriculum change. And Lord knows we need to do it. You, you know, it's been 16 years, I think, since Ken Robinson's Let's Change Curriculums and Look at It. And nothing's happened, let's be honest. So there's been little changes in little pockets. And have they stuck? I don't know. I can't say. But I agree. I mean, I think that I'm often quoted as saying, you know, that design's actually the center of a lot of these programs. And then all the other subjects go through them. And when you look at where citation, even of resources, starts, very often it's, you know, they're beginning to cite images and ideas and design well before they're actually formally doing that in school, you know, and there's all kinds of things like that, which I think would go a long way. I don't know if everybody would agree with us, but I definitely think that's... I don't think, yeah, people won't agree with us, especially especially those from a, a core curriculum. I had a an interesting one quite recently and it blew my mind that they didn't realize we did essays in design and I said well okay really I know that you do it in your subject I won't say what it was that'd be unfair but part of my job certainly is due diligence on looking at what other subjects do I've read all the syllabuses I really have I'm a sad man I've read the syllabuses of diploma for other subjects that we offer so I understand where geography's coming from or economics or physics in a way and there's a lot of stuff in design that we do in greater depth in some of those subjects you know you just go look at that syllabus in diploma I'm not saying it's a better subject it's not but it's an applied subject and 
I really like that. But I think some people, professionals in our business of education, stay in a little area and don't seldom look outside to see what, what, what else are other subjects doing that can either help me and contribute to my subject or how can my subject help and contribute to them. But in design, we always do that. We always look to facilitate how we can use it as a fulcrum to, to help others. That sounds very corny. When I say to help others, I mean to support others, you know, in education. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Are you finding in your current situation there are teachers, though, from other subjects who are curious about what's going on in design and, and want to know more about that? And, and what kinds of things would you say to them or show them if people are asking more questions? Yes, we are, because it's new to the school and it literally is new to the school. And also, it's not in the state curriculum. Design and technology doesn't exist in the, in the Swiss system like it doesn't exist in the French system. It's They do aspects of it through what they call technology, which we can get on to later. But they've got caught up in this buzz of STEM, again, which is not a subject. It's a cluster of subjects trying to do something else, trying to do design, actually, but we'll get on to that. So, yeah, the education has been really good. They can see, and they understand that the biggest thing for me is just to explain that it's not about manufacturing. Forgive me for old ground. You know, it is like designing a really cool wedding cake. All the ingredients and the stuff that goes inside is what we do, and everyone only sees the icing and the little pretty guy and girl, 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 guy, guy on the top of this cake. And that's all they see, and that's what their perception of design is. But all the, the stuff inside, you know, the hours slogging, the planning, the ingredients, they don't see that and they don't get it. So when I talked to a colleague, as I did the other day, about Toyota cars and they, the way they engineer the smell of the cars in Australia to be different to Japan or to, to be different to the UK because the clients want that. They look at you and they think, ooh. And then you say, well, actually, they spend more money on that than you do on the mechanicals, the engines, and, the, you know, the research, the d d on the engineering side to get the color right. Could you have the best car in the world? You sell it in the wrong color. It doesn't sell. I'm sorry, you produce it in the wrong color. It doesn't sell. And if you open the door and it doesn't smell like you expect it to smell, because actually, if you didn't design the insides of cars to smell, sorry, you just get, you fall over with the smell of glues and adhesives and everything else. So it's an important aspect of the product. It's only when you talk to people and then they go, oh, okay, I get it. And then you start to talk about, I don't know, orthodontist braces or furniture or the house you're living in or the vehicle, the new e-bike you've just bought. They then start to see the enormity of what, of what our subject is about. Not what we give them in knowledge, but what it's about. You know, if it hasn't grown out the ground or popped out of a human, someone has got a pen, pencil, sketched an idea. And that's where it starts. And so then they say, oh, okay. And then they back off and never talk to me again. But that's, you know, I'm used to that. That's what designers <laughs> Unless they're in group four and then they're ready to, they're to riot <laughs> <laughs> because you're taking all their students, right? <laughs> what kind of questions are you getting from students about it? Maybe who have never been exposed to design before? What kinds of things do they ask? One of the first ones, and it's, it's normally with the parents and the students is, you know, is it an academic subject, which you bite your tongue and think, you know, it's, you, you have to educate through so yes it is academic and it is also also creative and I think that's one of the key things for me to get over across the students design technology is an academic subject don't think it is purely creative it is creative it's massively creative but it's academic too and as soon as you get them onto that and lead by example and show them just a few products you know it can be anything from an Apple iBook it said to the related to the Tesla technology and motor car to SpaceX which went up yesterday or the day before they can then see and understand where you're trying to take them on this journey towards things but it's also the most, most mundane things I mean you know, you're in a part of the world, Jason, where, you know, things like food, drink and textiles are major GDP, they're major wealth creators. And when you tell that to parents, they will look, the clothes that you're wearing, the food that you eat and drink, that's designed, whether you like it or not, people design it, it comes, you know, the raw ingredients, but then you design things to go. And, and we forget about that, you know, that is, it, it is a massive area of study. And anthropology for me is crucial to this. So when I talk to parents and students about this, about how we're designing and developing products to benefit humankind, 
sure you've got your luxury products out there you know i mean we're in a school where a lot of parents are you know are doing quite well so they can get these luxury products but at the same time the nurturing of geotech materials to, to help land to grow products for people in countries where it's you know have drought or it's a massive divide and that's, that's what gives me the buzz so that education sorry i'm coming back on track what design's about it's just not about oh you know i've got the new iphone well that's that's great it's a bigger picture and parents need to understand that and colleagues and that education that's a hard I completely understand. And I'm actually in a really similar situation to you. We have pretty well-to-do students. You know, that's part of the situation. That's what we have. There's really good things with that. You know, there's things that you might not have when you're in a state system somewhere where you're dealing with lower economic status and things like that. So I agree with you. And so, you know, in thinking about that, if anyone's ever looked at the DP design tech syllabus or then looked at how MYP design is set up, it's incredibly academic. And what they don't realize is all the academics and the heavy lifting mentally that goes behind those two particular areas of study. I completely agree with you. I think that people look around, they don't see the design world where you and I look around and we always see it, the design world. Yeah, yeah, we get it, you see, and that's that's exactly it. And I mean, I'm passionate. I love design history. So that's a personal hit for me. But if you talk about user-centered design, you know, the world where we've got obesity and we've got, you know, we've got eating disorders on the other, you know, we've got everything in between. We've got old sods like myself who, as you get older, you start to develop things, be it arthritis or lack of mobility so how do we design products because we've got the more money to spend supposedly it's disposable income but then we can't use the products because they're not designed for us they did something recently the average remote control for a television set it has 86 buttons on it jace 86 buttons now if, if i just remember my mum, bless her she's passed on now to give that to my mum, she would just her head would explode she just wants on off volume channel you know 86 functions you know it's absolutely ridiculous but no one questions it the more buttons you have you get in a modern car now it took me 10 minutes on a rental the other day to turn the damn thing on it's just you've got to push that brake push this button hold these two together whistle dixie and then good luck and oh it started there's a very good video that was done by samsung on, on i think it was called the samsung chocolate it was some years ago so they did a, a demographic test it was really interesting it had an, a mature lady with a brand new product and a, an 18 year old student and they just videoed and timed them they had to get the phone out the box get it started put the sim card in and everything else the lady after 20 minutes was on page two of the manual reading it and everything the kid had chucked the box got the phone in knew what they're doing and they were up and rocking and rolling so all the information that they probably spent a lot of money on researching and didn't even look at the book. The kid just knew what to do and went and went. And we now, funny enough, we need that for products with older people because they don't need all the, I don't want to know that I push this button three times and I can get directly into Apple TV and do this and that. I just want to, you know, say on, off in volume and keep it simple. And I think we must, mobile phones, give an elderly person a mobile phone so they can contact you. But when they're lying on the floor because they've fallen over and they've got to look at this and they've got to do eye retina or thumb ding and push a code and then you know, it's too late. I think that's where design has gone wrong, but that's all part of it. Sorry, I've gone off on a tangent. Oh, it's Jace, okay. I- no, this is great. I love talking about this. And This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. I mean, if any, if no one knows about, if you've never even looked at the DP design guide, I mean, design syllabus or anything like that, this is a big part of that, you know, talking about when design fails and classic design and all these different things. And, you know, the remote control is a prime example of user ability, you know, and, and designing for your user and user-centered applications and, and students, the minute they start to try to design their own app, they realize how hard designing apps are. <laughs> wow. No, but, but apps is a, is a great, do, do you do that at your place, sir, Jace? Do you do, do, do app design? 
design or we do some user studies we do some adobe xd stuff where yeah. we're oh, cool. you know prototyping different kinds of app interfaces and things and yeah. i think for because you know it's pretty it's a pretty big business here in korea designing user experiences so no, that it, uh it the kids are interested in it right well of course they are and in fact i found recently which blew my mind there are six thousand five hundred apps a day released globally think about that a day and roughly 10 to 12 percent let's keep it simple because i'm terrible at maths 10 percent of those are for education so you got 650 apps a day 3,800 a week just for education i still get quite amazed when i see some schools saying i want to ban uh, mobile technologies be it a mobile phone or something else in their schools you know this is a massive resource it's like it's like standing with a in front of a tsunami with a table tennis bat trying to hang it bring the wave back it's not going to happen educate them on how to use the technology you know the technology is not the problem it's you know the social media is not the problem as such it's i know there are other things but it's educating youngsters and parents on how to use it at the right time responsibly that's a different issue to the actual thing but you're not going to stop this you know i said tsunami of, of thing going out and if 10 percent of those apps are 650 a day just for education and let's just split it 50 50 primary secondary schools you know that, that's a massive amount of resource tools that, that teachers can use to help improve the quality of what they do i'm not saying use technology to replace it some teachers don't have to use it that's absolutely fine it's a tool but there is a mountain of stuff out there and it's only going to get more you'd be foolish not to at least look at it i would suggest i agree and, and in our current situation with this uh covid stuff i would have to say that i'm really going to be interested when things kind of get back to normal in a, a normal in a sense because i have a feeling that folks i've never seen in my school will come up and see me and ask me about certain things because Teachers have just gone through or are currently in the largest technology upskilling you could possibly think about, you know, and that everybody's using tools that, and there will be people who we lose. There'll be people who retire after this because they're like, I can't handle the new normal. And there's going to be people who excel and who have had their career energized, you know, and reinvigorated because they found a new way to deliver content. And so I think this is only going to just, like you say, it's been so many years since Ken Robinson talked about that. I think that we're looking at those changes and we have to be part of that change as design teachers. We're at the forefront of being early adopters and, you know, first users of things. I definitely think that we may have a very, very different world on our hands once this thing starts to settle down a little bit. You're absolutely right, Jason. I think we said it before, but the this whole pandemic has, has spearheaded digital strategy for many schools, brought it forward by at least five years, I think. And it's scared a lot, especially those guys and girls in charge of finances. It's spearheaded change. It would be a shame to see colleagues go because they feel intimidated by the technology. The big question for me, I think, and certainly in our school, unlike many schools, there are two key issues with this going back. First one is the health and safety side of it. You know, it's all the social distancing and everything that goes with that, be it toilets, food, you know, the whole, the whole thing. But the other thing is, I really don't want people to see this use of technology now as something which then just gets binned because we're back into a classroom again. I'm hoping that they've seen the value of what, we, what it does. I mean, for us, for example, um, at the Lyceum, we're back into school on the 8th of, 8th of June, I think it is, whatever, in a, a limited run, but we're still maintaining the online school, so the t even if you've got face-to-face -face with students in the class, the teacher still does the online, because we've got a lot of students still in China, Russia, Korea, you know, Canada, wherever it is, still on attending lessons. Okay, there'll be time zone things, but we record the lessons or deliver them live to those in Europe. So we've still got the two things going on, and that's going to be a very interesting dynamic, because I think for some teachers, I mean, I'm a people person, so I, I like having students in the class and talking with them, but I'm also a very keen uh, user and supporter of 
of technology to help deliver, not to deliver, but to help deliver what I do. And there's been a lot of discussion on forums recently about, you know, we've had Zoom, oh, it's great, oh, hang on, there's security issues, you know, do you use Teams? Do you, you know, again, there's 600 um, audiovisual software things out there. For, it's just a tool. It's not dictating education. If I give a student a piece of paper and I give them a Montblanc pen or I give them a BIC, the, the essay is the same. The technology doesn't change the nature of the essay. And if you happen to own a Porsche motor car, it doesn't mean you're a good driver. So you've got all these, you know, you, you have to look carefully at where we're going with it. I want teachers to adopt technology, but there will be some teachers who don't need to use it in most of their, th in their classes. And that could be, you know, performing arts, it could be a maths class, whatever that's your call you're the professional you know and if it's coming back to what you said at the beginning jace if students are inspired however you do it rock and roll that's good that's what you need to do. You inspire kids get them on board they learn they take on the knowledge and they apply it now if you don't need technology to do that in all your lessons absolutely fine you know there there are schools out there who will say you must do this and you and i'm not sure that is the correct philosophy as you said a lot of we're losing an awful lot of wisdom from the profession at the moment a because we're expensive to employ when you're older b they're exasperated and got fed up so they want to you know, say, you know what, this is a pain. I'm, I'm getting out now. I'll, I'll go part time, and that's a big issue for the profession too, because you've got a lot of part time, you know, and that itself creates a lot of a lack of continuity. I think sometimes in, in schools. Yeah, the, there's a massive picture we need to look at here. Going back and teaching, like you know, nursing and, and, and the medical profession is is under the spotlight, and I think it's we need to be very careful in how we plan and strategize going forward. But I think we've we've done an awful lot. We we could never have planned for the amount of professional development that's gone on over the past three months or, or what have you in terms of using technology and also didactics of teaching just the actual teaching online that's been really good and it's been to a certain extent free because we haven't said had to send colleagues off all over the place to go on courses but how we manage that coming back in and how we manage the well-being of teachers coming back in and the well-being of, of students and the well-being of parents because a lot of parents are really stressed out at the moment they can see what teachers do and they really they love their kids to pieces please go back to school you know go i love you see you see you at six bye now and so we've got that big thing to manage now. I completely agree with you, David. Absolutely. Yeah. And as a parent who's also a teacher, it's a double whammy because my wife and I are both teachers and then our kids are in, we can have four Zoom meetings going on at the exact same time. Thank goodness our bandwidth has been okay here to run that. But uh, so I want to shift gears. Thank you. That was lively, that discussion, but just sort of the nuts and bolts because a lot of the listeners are newer to the profession or either newer to teaching design. As an experienced person who's got 30 plus years and all these other things under your about 25 years anyway. How do you go about getting the resources and things that you need wherever you're at? Because you've worked in all kinds of different settings. What's the best way to go about that? What's some tips you can give people? I've been quite lucky because I've, I've had a couple of schools where I've started a department from scratch, you know, and that includes in one school, it was the design. And one in France, we, we got in early, we were all employed to design the footprint and then they built the school. It, poured car, it was a poured concrete school in about six months. So getting in at the beginning was important, but for, that's that was a luxury. Two things, I suppose. The first thing is you need to get your management and your government your governors sorry on on board with your with your idea your vision we all need to have a vision first of all even if you're an established subject how you want your subject to be perceived at the school where you want it to go doesn't not just about design that's a general thing and i think schools have been quite i was going to say poor but that's probably not fair but teachers need to understand the idea of having accountability for a budget and preparing a budget a running budget and a capital budget in design you do that all the time and i think management and schools appreciate that they have a timeline of finance because if you just tip up in a meeting with your head or 
or somebody responsible for the curriculum like yourself, CP, say, look, I need $3,000, whatever it is, because I need to do this just out the blue. They're going to say, well, where was that in the budget? So understanding budget is important. And I think understanding, getting your strategy in place, a three and five year plan. I always do a three and five year plan. There's a one year plan at the beginning. I should kickstart it. But a three and five year plan gives everybody, all your stakeholders, your governors, your parents, your students, your staff, they can see where you're going. If a year two, for whatever reason, suddenly your numbers drop or it doesn't work, at least you can then review that and go from there. But in general, if you've got a plan going forward, a simple strategy, I want to achieve X by this time and why I need to have this classroom with these machines if I'm doing resistant materials, sorry, product design or systems and control, or if I'm doing it, you know, if I'm doing um, a graphics-based approach to it or textiles or food, whatever it is, you need to do your due diligence, visit other schools that are doing the same, you know, and it doesn't have to, you don't have to fly somewhere or whatever. You can use the technology to, you know, just go around with the GoPro or your mobile phone and show somebody, your department have done it here just from a mobile phone. You show them what you're doing, where it's gone. Look at your legislation. You know, I've seen multi-million pound companies setting up places like Abu Dhabi and other everywhere else and they just don't look at the local kind of health and safety guidelines and things so your extraction for this or your yeah your, your your hygiene regulations for that they're not in place and you think well that's your basic starting point so strategy first of all sell the vision and it is selling the vision you know you, you know even if you're a maths teacher you need to sell the vision all subjects need to have an idea where are you going with this how where do we take it getting your plans budget and strategy in place in terms of development I think that's massively important and then those guys and girls who are responsible for your budget can see that if it's a capital investment you know a laser cutter now i don't know three thousand dollars for a reasonable one i don't stop getting in you know you need to get it in there it's just the way it is you know if you're if you're in charge of a sporting department to set up a kind of um a high jump and mat and things cost you more money than it does for a laser cutter or if you're putting it in all weather surface but our school it was we had uh, i was given a seven million budget to set up a an all-weather surface with an athletics track and things that included car parking stuff whether it's a classroom where you're getting some stationary going for a class of 20 students or it's a complete athletics track with a car parking the principal is exactly the same what's the vision how do we get there and then you just put some kind of bite-sized chunks in place so those people who don't they don't want to know the nuts and bolts of what design and technology is about they just need to know okay it's going to cost us that it's going to be over three years that's the number of kids we've got coming in we can see we can we can see where this is going Fantastic. That's some great advice. And I know there's going to be people out there who will be taking notes. Yeah, this is Jason saying this. <laughs> this is no, Jason. This is not yeah. me. So Dave, tell me what you're really, really excited about at the moment. You're, everything we're talking about, you're excited mm. about. But what are the opportunities or the applications or whatever? What are you really excited about right now? In terms of curriculum, Jason, or in terms of tools and, and It resources? could be anything, just what you're really into at the moment. The thing that's really given me a buzz at the moment is it's been talked about for so long about what is our core curriculum or what curriculum's about. And when I say, oh, I don't mean my school. I think just globally in general. And I think this whole period of uncertainty over the past few months has reshaped the vision on what we actually do as schools. But it does have to come, you know, in most cases, it comes from a central government kind of thing. And I think we just need to review, you know, what is a core curriculum? What do we need to include to help our students develop as young guys and girls so that they can bring real benefit to society as you move forward and the excitement for me comes from this thing anthropology i've banged on about it and bored people to tears for 20 years on it i strongly believe that anthropology should be at the core of a curriculum you know the study of humankind and that was born out of design because you design products to improve the quality of life for people whether it's a luxury product or a necessity you do it to improve the quality of life and technology is a word i've grown to hate now it's like stem i actually really don't like stem i love the idea of interdisciplinary work between maths and engineering and science that's 
not an issue. And that's been going on for a long time in many schools. But to suddenly spearhead it just because governments think that this is, oh, it's academic and it's, you know, what we need. No, you don't need technology. You need to look at what you're designing for. And that's everything from kind of human structure, you know, structures and schools, most of them are hierarchies. And so, yeah, that's exciting for me, I think. I think if we can revisit and get down, I've been in touch on um, on forums with, you know, with these green schools now, which are setting up. There's like one in New Zealand, one in Bali, I think it is, I can't remember. And they still have, you know, the traditional, for want of a better term, subjects in the mix. But the way in which they do it, Finland, for example, has stopped any specific subject study going on. They do project-based. So you do, you know, every two weeks, you do a project start to finish, like we do in design. What can I say? It's what, you know, hey, design, leading the world. But we, you know, you have a project, you have a brief, you know, we, we've got this field. What do we put into it? What do we want to plant? How do we get there? Where do we sell it? Where do we take it? That kind of idea. I think that, that is something that really excites me. Will it happen? I think it will now, despite the Ken Robinson stuff and creativity and, you know, age I think we've now been forced into where people have been forced to take a step back and look at what we offer in schools or what we offer students, I think, and adults. You know, I think office, the world of work is, is certainly going to change. The knock-on effect to that is going to be massive, but schools are still going to have to be there to support that change and give the information to youngsters, give the knowledge to youngsters that they need to be able to then apply where we go. But I think that's the key thing. You know, I, curriculum parity. Why does maths have five or six periods of, you know, maths since the kid was six and design, they tend to get three or four when they're age 12 and go forth. Well, we just missed out on eight years of, of design. Why doesn't, I like parity of things. I think languages are crucial. I think languages should be at the core of a curriculum. You know, sketching. You know, I can do a sketch. I can do a, a sad face and show it to you on screen and you know exactly what I'm thinking. And so we fund that we need to get right back down to fundamentals. But the problem we have, Jason, with this is that a lot of the people who are, t- are responsible for some of this have come through quite traditional and mainstream education experiences themselves. So they may not have experienced performing arts or visual arts or design and technology or sport or whatever it is that is you know that gives that balance and i think that is fundamental and that excites me i think that change coming i agree with you and i think parents are going to demand more and when i say demand more i don't mean i think they're going to want more value (laughs) for what's happening in school you know i don't think status quo is going to be okay anymore you know i think that they're going to say how is this going to help prepare my child or whatever and I, i agree with you i'm excited about it too and i think it's we've got a lot to do to get ready for that I think so. When you say value, Jace, I mean, that's a very good term, actually. From your side of things, what do you think the value is that is missing currently that, that the parents look for? Well, again, I go back to saying that, you know, everyone's an expert on education because they all went to school, right? And yeah. so I think, though, because the parents have, at least the ones who have been involved in this process of being at home and learning, if they're watching mm-hmm. this process unfold with their kids, they're going to be looking at each other and saying, what are they doing that for? Why is that an activity? Why is that important? important. A lot of that seems busy work. Why could we could have done that from a book ourselves? You know what I'm saying? So I think they're going to now be asking, wait a minute, is this how it usually is in your class? You know, I think they're going to be starting com- or having conversations where they are asking a lot of the questions they should have been asking all along. And I think now it's going to be, they're going to be asking for more. And, and I, you know, I think there's going to be cameras in the classroom from here until we can think about, it. I think that having that ability to stream and to capture what's going on in classroom. I believe parents are going to also start demanding that too, because I am aware of some high-end schools where parents send their kids away, even internationally, and at any point in the day, they can actually turn on their camera, their computer and see what's happening in that classroom that those kids are in. And I think that's going to become more of the norm. I don't know if you've heard of that or not, but yeah, that's that's happening in New Zealand and Australia and a lot of places like that. That's happening. It's really interesting. And is that, dare I say, is that in, is that in state systems or fee-paying systems, Jason? Is that a... Those are in private fee-paying systems. Boarding so, school type situation. And it's not a question of 
of health and safety or what have you. It's just the value added that a parent can log in and just see that, you know, that their son or daughter is enjoying that geography lesson or whatever it is or, or what have you. That That is really interesting. I hadn't really considered that. It's almost like, you know, one of the biggest money spinners on television in recent times are these these kind of, what do you call them? Doc, it's not a document. Yeah, it's a documentary in a way, but you've got the GoPros on the policeman or what have you, that type of thing. I can. We're saying we're going to have a vest with a GoPro on the teacher. So uh, do you know what I mean? That Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That'd be good. Yeah, it'll be good. I could see it being something that's set up in the back of the room so you're not really endangering kids being uh, identified necessarily. It's kind of behind their heads kind of thing. But yeah. just to see, number one, if, if the teacher's doing what they should be doing. I mean, there's an aspect of that too to see if that's going on. But I think more it's about what's the learning that's happening? What's it look like? I'm not encouraging this necessarily, but I'm just no, no, saying no, but it's interesting. I could see because we're playing around with hybrid models and blended learning and what's it going to look like when half our kids are not at school? when we start back up are we going to have live lessons or are they going to be recorded and then they can watch them later you know we're wrestling with those questions too and i think that that's probably what's going to be the future and i think snow days and things like that may no longer be days that we're missing from school they're just having them at home so i think that i think that's where we're headed look you were in hong kong for a long time there are disaster days there when typhoons come through and when in japan there's earthquake days and then in indonesia they have the burn days and things like that and in thailand they have floods and stuff. So I think yeah. what's happening is, you know, as the LMS systems around the learning management systems are becoming more and more prevalent and more advanced. I mean, I've seen huge developments in Google Classroom just in the last three months because of the market demands it. It's been accelerated, hasn't it? Because of our situation. Absolutely. And they know if they don't do something, it, they will lose their market share. And so I think the developers have been forced to push this through. The point about schools have gone through change in the past decade, actually, Jason, and certainly the franchise Franchising, you know, some of the big UK independents started off your Wellingtons and your Dulwiches. They started off 15 years ago with, I remember, yeah, I remember working on some plans for a school, one of the first ones in China at the time in Shanghai. And so the franchising has worked big time. So what is it that we offer over and above? And this could be one of those extra things that, well, if I'm if I'm paying this, what about this? The flip side, of course, is you go to some countries that downtown, they go through a metal detector or they got cameras in there because of security and, and that type of thing. So we've got we kind of got two ends of the spectrum. One because because a parent is paying, therefore they want to, you know, I want to, I want to see Mr. Regan teaching, and is he doing a good job? And what color are his trousers today? Because I think that's important to the development of my child. And then you've got this other one down here, where, you know, they're having a fight in in, in, that, in that class. Something's kicked off. We need to get down there now and sort it out. And in between, but I, I hadn't considered that value-added side of things. I think I know one of the things that we've been looking at here at the school, and our head has been uh, very keen on this, and I think it's a great idea. You know, we, we are interested because of the lockdown. We still had 50 odd borders still in the school, and we down there in the school so you know they're trying to rush you know students from all over the place so what did we do over and above normal classroom time because they say they're during the holidays and so we set up so we're looking at you know i'm being very simplistic but gardening and farming and so the subsistence side but it's more the education was it is still the livelihood of the world whether you like it or not you know manufacturing you know, stuff that grows out the land using the land to, to help we're almost coming back full circle aren't we to, to what we do so getting students involved in in agriculture and things and, and not necessarily want them to all have beautiful gardens when they're adults but to understand the mentality behind it and the knowledge and give them the knowledge to, to appreciate it and to nurture it. And the same with animals. I mean, you know, there's, um, again, the past 30 years, I've seen a massive change, you know, like, like you said, I mean, I grew up in Hong Kong. In an evening, you go out with friends and you 
may have snake soup or you may have the attitudes, mindsets and attitudes change. Cultures don't. Yeah, the franchising of schools, taking what started off as kind of UK public style schools and putting it out there, you have to put it into a context where you have to appreciate the, the culture you're going into. That has been massive. But the number of schools that are franchised now, the growth, especially in the Middle East areas, the Far East, as you know, has been, been stratospheric. It's gone like that. And it's driven by money. Let's just cut to the chase. Let's not try to say we're trying to, you know, educate everyone in the future. It's driven by a financial, there's a financial model to this as a business. But we mustn't forget that the grassroots is about education because whether they go to Jason's school or they go to David's school, what we offer makes a difference. And I think that value that you mentioned earlier, coming back, many good schools do many good things. If you, if you go to the websites of some of these leading schools, and I'm probably going to shut down fans, you'll probably die of boredom because it's exactly the same. This is our mission statement. This is our, this is it. This is our kids looking good on the hillside. This is our kids, you know, doing something in technology. And I think it's all the same, but what is it over and above to make sure, what's your unique selling point? What is your USP? It could be location, it could be language, it could be culture. It could just be the fact that you actually, you do a lot of things actually quite well. There's no real buzz or special new multi-million pound facility. We just do good stuff. Our results are okay. Our kids are smiling and happy and we inspire them. That has to be your nuts and bolts, your term, of what we actually do. And I think if parents, the problem we have is that most parents will hit Twitter and social media first of all. And Twitter's the big one for parents. And Facebook actually. Facebook is, I know people say it's old hat. No, actually the demographic of people who are spending money to put kids into school, 35 to kind of 55 year old, that kind of thing. Facebook's the number one hit to go and see the forums on the school or, or get feedback. When they're making a judgment call, they're doing it online first of all. There are, there are no visits. The visit will come but quite often people have paid or made a decision or even if not in fee-paying schools even in state districts where you're making a decision where you live you look at schools you go online first of all you may drive past it but you'll go online and make that decision first and how you capture that interest how you yeah i suppose in a way sell your product what is the unique selling point that your school has over someone else you go you see some videos of a headmaster or a headmistress or a, a lead in a school giving a monologue at the beginning which inspires you and other times you just you let it run you go and get a coffee how does it work but it's, it, it is true isn't it and, and marketing in that respect is it's really important but I think the nuts and bolts the basics is do your kids enjoy school do they come home smiling do they come home tired do they get up in the morning and are happy to go to school are your teachers the same and we miss that I think teachers are, you forget your kids forget your money anything else if your team is your important asset your teachers are your main asset for any school you can you can be in a shed but if you've got a couple of good teachers who inspire doesn't matter you're flying and there's an element of complacency that has crept into the profession I think kids turn up you've got a captive audience and you hear you notice that sometimes I've seen because I've only been mainly in the independent sector for my career the fee-paying sector when you get you see colleagues coming in from the state sector and then when you try to what they do is very good they're great teachers but they can't be complacent they have to market their subject because if they don't get kids doing their subject we may not be able to offer it on the timetable so the money isn't coming in so you might not have a job i'm being very simplistic but the reality check is that is exactly the case you know schools have to get bums on seats the fee-paying schools and the international schools to make it work but where's the balancing act between just filling with anybody and being able to select and choose not bright students it's not about that it's the right students for your school because some schools suit certain students and certain parents you know i've been in schools where you have some you know very famous personalities have got the students there because the school's off the radar it isn't marketed big time it's not in your face and buzzing and there's other parents who are kind of the wannabes the kind of one direction lot who come through <laughs> i didn't say that i should say k-pop shouldn't i they, that are coming through who want their kids to go to this school because it's prestigious and it'll be a they'll network with students and they'll bounce on it you know it's a really tough game to do and as a parent like yourself i've got two girls jay 
case in 23 and 16. You know, we, we homeschool our youngest one, our eldest one is studying online at the moment for courses. So it's a really tough market out there. And I think that the whole of the COVID thing has changed the mindset of parents too. Well, why do I need to spend 30,000, 60,000 on a school when I can see this at home? And the other thing is very quickly, technology, I love it. There was, um, there was a show in China not that long ago, which was done by, I've got, I, if I name the fashion house, I'll get shot. It wasn't Prada, but one of those. And they did a, it was a holographic display. All the models came up and down. It was completely holographic. And the audience were far enough away not to know. And it was only at the end when the models came together and boof, you can see it on, on YouTube. They disappeared. And everyone then realized that it, they weren't real models. Why education? I can see a kid sitting at a desk here. I need my geography tutor. They may be in South Africa, but they get a time stop. And then they've got a holographic tutor in the room who can teach for them. So you're asking where technology is going to go. We have to think, we have to aim up here, I think. We can't, let's not be naive to this. In the same way as I'm absolutely 100% sure and I, that within a couple of years, when you've got your Mac top, you won't have a screen because that takes all the battery life. It'll be a holographic display that comes up and your screen will be projected or something into something. That, absolutely. Because it makes sense, you know, the battery life and the way it works. But I can see it in schools. I can see, you know, cameras are one thing like this now. But if we, that's just, just, just what I call future forge a little bit. I could see a, you know, a, a holographic teacher in front of a class if, if the teacher wasn't there, like a, a, a sub, what do you call it, a, a cover teacher, for example. That may be the starting way for it to work. It's all on cameras. Uh, you know how it works but we have to think like this Jason I think because even though it's not now you know we're not far from the middle of the 21st century now you know what, what's happening to 2015 kids starting schools now are coming out in 2044 2045 whatever it is and you look how technology has moved since the 60s to now we're not talking about a significant change sorry no that's great I mean I heard someone say today a few days ago that we're as close to 2050 as we are far away from 1990 and when I thought of it that way I was like oh I don't want to hear that right now so David listen, we need to kind of wrap this up, but let me ask you, what's uh, what book would you recommend people read right now? The first one is this one. This is um, Classic Cars. That's brilliant. No, sorry. Okay. I've got these here just because what, one of the ones I'm reading at the moment, Jason, I mean, any book about design, I've got them behind me, but anything to do with product design, but that's that's a selfish indulgence. We're talking about education. One I've really enjoyed at the moment, and we'll put it in your, attach it later on. But one of them, I just hold it up, is this one, Creating Cultures of Thinking. And it, it's about by a guy called Ron Richart, and it's about how can we transform form our schools and it's the culture behind how do we change the culture of our schools because the biggest problem we have in schools is changing the culture we have a, every school globally has a 200 year old curriculum model and it's a bit daft you know we need to change things how do we turn the ship around this is another interesting one i really like this one and this is one again i'll put it up there the david marquet it's about how you turn followers into leaders and schools our colleagues in schools will follow to a certain extent what they're told by your management your curriculum leaders or what have you but actually what we need need those people to be woven into the fabric of that decision making and it's not a higher you know this is the boss the boss will have the vision that's absolutely right to have the vision but he or she will then put people in place with the better knowledge and that, that, that's another thing oh that's a good thing here we go I know we want to wrap this up that the whole thing about you know if you're a leader in a school you are not the font of all knowledge you will have some spikes of interest and, and stuff you're good at and that may be from the degree that you did or the world of work you've come from but you're not a knowledge base but you the skill is to say you know I want that to develop and that person there it's got much better knowledge they're really good with people whatever I want that person in my team to do it and it's about that team building so getting the followers to become leaders and a lot of teachers are very modest about actually being able to take on that role because they lead their classes every day when they teach but to take it into the bigger picture and I think that's what will make good schools great is getting that kind of uh, leadership from all areas of the school bit from the 
kitchen staff, the maintenance teams, your teachers, your financial guys and girls, your human resources, getting them to lead on it and to advise. Someone has to take on and make the decisions, of course. That's why that's why they're there. But to advise them based on the experience they have, that changes the culture. But it's a really deep rut that most schools have. You know, why, you know, rather than saying, why not? They go, why, why, why? And, you know, and it's a bit of hassle. We need that to change. Those books, they're good. We'll put them at the end. I have a bunch of other things that you've already filled out for the, the show notes. And I could not think of a better way to kind of wrap this up, David. It's been such a pleasure catching up with you and hearing your awesome ideas for how we should make education better and how we should... <laughs> And how we should continue because what you're saying parallels with design programs of having to market ourselves and having to add value. And I think that that's probably where we should wrap it up is, you know, go out there and add value. So David, thank you so much. It's been so great talking to you. Thank you, Jace. Good to catch up, my friend. And we'll do it again soon. All right. All right. Thanks, David. All the best. Bye-bye.